0: Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and development in future fuels, vehicles, and transport energy. My name is Tammy Klein. I'm your host, I'm founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies. And with me today is a special group. Um, We just did a web conference. Um, on the future of HBO. And now we're following up uh, with a podcast um, because we all sort of felt like we didn't quite cover all the questions and dialogue that we wanted to have. So let me introduce to you um, our, uh, uh, our group uh, for today. First of all, our speakers. Uh, first, we have with us uh, Bruce Comer, who is the founder and a managing director of Ocean Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have with us uh, Eric Vanden den Uvel, who is a founder um, of Studio Gearup Gear uh, in Europe. And finally, I want to introduce to you my co-host and co-questioner uh, for this podcast, uh, Philippe Marchand, um, who many of you know is a steering committee member of the European Technology and Innovation Platform, ETIP, and is formerly the senior biofuels expert uh, with Total. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tammy. (laughs) We're back at it again. And um, this is really unusual. I was just saying before we started because typically when we do um, uh, webinars, web conferences when you you see um, uh, the event, it's over, it's done. You know, you get to the questions maybe somebody follows up too bad, so sad um, and it's over (laughs) and everybody (laughs) goes on with their lives. Um, In this case, we had such a rich um, discussion um, that started with the um, in the web conference that we all kind of concluded wasn't quite complete. Um, so thank you all for coming back um, to talk a little bit more about the future of HVO from your perspective. So I'm going to turn it over for this uh, special podcast to my uh, co-host, um, co-conspirator and co-questioner, uh, Philippe Marchand, who will kind of start. Uh, with the questions. Philippe, thanks so much for doing this. And I'm going to turn it over to you for the first question.
1: Thanks for the introduction, Tammy. Um, Yes, it's true. During the webinar, we we touched upon the the issue of feedstock availability. And uh, I think we wanted to expand a bit during this podcast because it's uh, one of the key issues for biodiesel. Uh, We know there are concerns about uh, feedstock availability in the U.S., to, massive the, the, to support the massive scale up of uh, of HVO, and uh, we are talking concerns in terms of uh, soy or tallow availability, but we also know that we have um, feedstock availability issues in the EU, uh, but mostly because of the sustainability criteria and the structure of the Renewable Energy Directive, like the the cap on the Annex nine B. And uh, of also the limited commercial availability of permitted feedstocks in the Annex 9A. So um, it would be great for the two of you to, to expand on the, on the issue where are we going to have the, the feedstock coming from if we have this massive uh, scale up of uh, capacity production of HVO? Uh, mm-hmm. Will there be uh, issues with the commodity markets, with soy, for instance? Uh, Is there a risk of backlash, uh, controversies uh, of the guise of food versus fuel and oil uh, that could hamper the the industry scale up uh, for this technology? Uh, So, Eric, uh, Bruce, your call, uh, whoever wants to go first.
2: There I I'm, I'm happy to jump in. No <laughs> you, no you, no
0: you, no you. <laughs>
2: okay, so um, well, look, I I think in the short term, our, our view is uh there's these are price inelastic feedstocks. Uh it is very even uh and just since our webinar, the price of RBD soy, uh refined soy oil has has gone up. Uh, again, and continues to. So um, I I think there is just a a limit on what you can do to the soy crop, which is the workhorse uh, and is likely to be the, the primary feedstock for these new renewable diesel plants in the US. Um, And then when you get to tallow and uh, corn oil out of ethanol plants or use cooking oil, those we're just not going to see much growth beyond, at least domestic growth, beyond natural population growth. Maybe there's a little bit you can squeeze out. Um, but you're not going to have double-digit growth in those sectors. Uh, and, and I think that's just going to be what, what we're going to face in the short term. Uh, medium to longer term, there are some exciting, promising alternative crops, camelina, Caranata, Um These are um, uh, co- cover crests. uh You're seeing investments and rollouts. But those are years in the making, probably five, maybe even 10 years before those uh, make a difference. Right now, I think most of those crops, one, there's not even consolidated information we've seen on those crops. You have to go to the individual companies and we're talking about thousands of acres or maybe at most tens of thousands of acres in the next few years. So uh, I think. Uh, feedstock constraint is a reality uh, for renewable fuels and reno, uh, HVO or RD for the next uh, two to five years is is I think is something we need to plan around. <clears throat> yeah, I think indeed it's 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 it's
3: one of the key issues to actually. Uh, find ways to have this market grow. And in the end, I think what we do see in Europe, I mean, we do see, uh, let's say, caps on on the uh, uh, food and feed crop-based fuels. So Europe has already said, well, any growth has to come from waste-based biofuels. So in a sense, the connection is with, let's say, the transition towards a circular and bio-based economy. It's the other sectors that need the primary products that have to take it, and then you can take some of the residues to use that for. Uh, And, of course, the growth of the the used cooking oil and the the tallow-based HVO and FAME are, let's say, an example of how quickly that market has grown. Um, But we see also that that normally these feedstocks are sourced from so many countries, even though the majority of them will be 10 or 12 or so. Uh, In the Netherlands, we have seen that all used cooking oil has been... Um, found in 70 countries to actually bring it here. And that's possible because in many of the countries where they export it from, there is no biofuel policy in place, and then you can better use it uh, rather than have there some health issues locally. But that will also, that expansion will come to some end, you could say. So there is, like uh, Bruce said, yeah, a very uh, a strong need to broaden your feedstock base, um, and um, and that means that we have to look beyond also that what now is common in regulatory places and find these marginal or abandoned lands to see well can we connect it. Um, with let's say other uses and and multiple multiple functions at the same time in agricultural businesses to really start thinking of new coalitions of production of feedstocks for well other markets and the energy market and at the same time also have these byproducts almost again um as as feedstock for the hvo production or or something else and i think this kind of new Coalition and go back into the ag- agricultural sector to collaborate. I think that is also one of the challenges for the next next decade to say.
0: So, my to, oh,
1: sorry, sorry, Tami. Just, just to elaborate on these uh, these uh, uh, issues in Europe uh, about uh, caps and constraints. And uh, Eric, you mentioned uh, the ILUC, and of course, it, it would be interesting if the two of you could contrast the approach towards land use change in the European legislation and the, the American legislation? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Well,
3: in the, well how, it, how it is organized in, 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 in Europe, I mean, the legislation says that um, uh, f- crops with a, which are, well, let's say, f- biofuels that are produced from crops that have a high outlook, uh, risk will be phased out in the next years, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, European Commission had, let's say, a research done by the Joint Research Centre to um, uh, to des- well to describe criteria how to yeah determine whether a crop is a high ileg risk feedstock. So it is about expansion of the total uh, so expansion of the total production and the growth, and also the share of the biofuels market in that segment. And in that uh, uh, analysis, uh, palm oil was um, determined as a high-look high risk feedstock. And um, uh, the, so, so well, that will be phased out. I mean, we have already a cap on all uh, crop-based uh, biofuels, but this one would be then be phased out from 23 onwards to 2030, being zero. Unless, and that is now under development still, there there is a delegated act. Being prepared about well how to certify a low ILUC biofuel for those high ILUC risk feedstocks. So if you are able, in the case of this palm oil, to uh, set up a, 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 a supply system and a production system in which you can certify that this production has taken place uh, under a low ILUC system and has been certified accordingly. Well, then this this biofuel again could qualify, though it still has to stay under the existing crop-based uh, uh, limits of uh, max seven percent.
1: It's very complex. I'm pretty sure, Bruce, you've got a much simpler answer. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm
2: sorry.
0: It's not Eric's fault. (laughs) uh, No, 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 no. it's
2: very complex. I I would say one thing. um, I see the Annex 9, and there's nothing like that in the US. It is is very direct. It calls out names on a list. Um, And while we have some of that in the US in our policies, it is very, very indirect. Um, In the RFS and our national policy, uh, we don't even discriminate between two different CI scores. Um, and, And so, yes, there's a little bit. Uh, on what's advanced or or what's a regular biofuel, but it's not as direct and it's not calling out feedstocks at that level. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, are you in the bucket or not? It's very binary mm-hmm. at a national level. Um, California is uh, much more nuanced because then there is an attempt to put a score, uh, a, a carbon intensity score on both a production process and a feedstock. So again, that feedstock is buried in a a combined score. And um, there's a little bit of ILUC in in that model to get to that CI score. And CARB in California has some control and say over that. But remember, that's one state. And that's about 10% of the fuel use. Uh, We don't know that other states will adopt that same model, or could adjust it, mm-hmm. um, and that's subject to revision. So we we clearly do not have something as explicit and line item, uh, you know, formality of a of an Annex Nine list of feedstocks.
0: But I did have a question, um, you know, for you for you both. I mean, it's um, you know the scale. Just to, to step back and you know put Philippe's question in further further context and also what, what you both have said. Okay, the scale-up is happening. It's happening in the US and, and uh, EU. Primarily, 1G type feedstocks, if we, if you will, um, are uh, really going to be utilized in the interim. Bruce said we would not have alternative feedstocks at least in his point of view. And I agree, Carinata, Camelina, um, for five, 10 years. Um, Eric touched upon bringing into production um, uh, marginal um, lands. Um, you know, there's billions of dollars out there um, that are being um, invested. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, um what, you know, it's um so my, my question is, do you see government um, stepping in either the commission or potentially the U.S. to maybe advance um, R&D in both areas, both bringing back into production marginal lands and feedstocks? Do you see that? Do you see, you know, more? Funding to accelerate Mm -hmm. R and D for alternative um, uh, feedstocks um, to, you know, support uh, the the industry. Do you see a rethink
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um, that governments will ultimately be forced to rethink um, their policy on feedstocks to sort of make this work? I can't imagine Mm -hmm. this industry making the billions of dollars of investment that it's making Mm -hmm. and just Leaping into the void, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. So, how do you all see that uh, potentially shaking out?
3: Well, uh, well, if if uh, if I start, I, I well, some of the thinking. I mean, um, we are waiting for now since the the uh, um, the increased uh, targets for minus fifty five percent CO two emission reduction compared to no, uh, nineteen ninety. Uh, there is a new package now coming in the Green Deal and th- that will be presented in July 14. Of And, and that will, let's say, have, let's say, um, fixed all their thinking in all these new proposals. So in that sense, that's a very interesting uh, summer we have to look at, yeah, we look forward to, um, <laughs> <laughs> to see w- in which direction they do see it. Um, I think, well, if 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 uh, I expect that there will be a lot of uh, trust in the the degree of electrification and the introduction of hydrogen. I mean, that is a central point in the European strategy. Hydrogen strategy is very strong, so it might be that they uh, see the, uh, the the perhaps the requirements of a rapid uh, and a large uh, scale up of biofuel based uh, fuels. Um, uh, not as much as some people might want it, and they also see to do see to have some hopes on then stepping. If it is renewable fuels, uh, liquid or gaseous, then it should be more uh, electricity-based fuel. So the renewable fuels of non-biological origin or the e-fuels. So I so I, I don't see yet this connection to supporting and investigating on new feedstocks. Uh, or to reconnect to agriculture. I do see there are programs to further stimulate uh, um, in a technology, conversion technology. But as the Commission has stated, Annex 9 will be the basis for this expansion and Annex 9 mainly covers uh, wet, bi- uh, wet biomass wastes and lignocellulosic and woody material based and only a few that are lipids I would expect that they see more trust in technologies that are able to deliver those fuels and those that are lipid based um, in the end they see that moving towards the aviation sector we might come to that later but mm-hmm. to see these go into the to the aviation sector uh, where they are, are seen to be as Necessary
2: and uh, uh, more necessary than any other sector. Yes. Yeah. I, I wonder if we're just going to see some natural limits to the growth of renewable fuels based on fog, and and that's coming back to the HVO RD world. I let's look. We have two very good case studies in the U.S. on Gen One corn-based ethanol. Uh, Thirty to forty years to get to ten plus percent of the gasoline supply. Um, and that that was a uh, we got there you know got there quicker. maybe there are ways to accelerate that, but we're talking about decades to get to 10%. And I think um, it's debatable, but most people would call that a success from where it started. Uh, and you had to break through and get a new fuel, a new molecule into cars um, and into a distribution system. Biodiesel, Uh, is more in the single digit percentage, but that's more like 20 or 30 years of a lot of hard work. Um, So HVO and RD is more of a drop in molecule. Uh, A lot of that heavy lifting uh, was done by those other biofuels. Maybe Mm -hmm. the political winds have changed, maybe boards have changed, but I I still think um, if you look at those two case studies, thinking of an RVO, uh, RD or an HVO getting to 10, 15%. Is there a natural limit where it's going to just run out? And that's despite what Eric pointed out in the webinar um, previously, that there is a great demand and great need to tackle uh, the greenhouse gas emissions from the transport sector. Um, So, But will this just be, um, there's some solution to come from this avenue? Uh, from the from the fog feedstocks and these these pr- uh, production technologies, but are we going to hit a natural limit um, that that where there's going to be difficult
1: uh, difficult to get beyond that?
0: Philippe, I'll flip it back to you. Uh,
1: okay, so let let us assume that we have uh, supply constraints on lipids, uh, FOGs, whatever we want to call that. And then, uh, of course, from a technology point of view, uh, diesel and kerosene are very close to each other on the crude oil distillation curve. So bearing in mind that the hydrogenation process uh, to transform lipids into either renewable diesel or renewable kerosene, um, this process is quite flexible. Then shouldn't there be some sort of a hierarchy of usage for those biofuels in limited supply based just on the the principle of substitutability, It's a great question. It it reminds me of
2: a few years ago, we did some work for an airline on their their SAF. Uh, Back then it was renewable jet fuel, uh, but now a a SAF strategy. And we met with the CEO of a, a renewable fuels company that at least have the technology and probably the pathway to uh, get go from renewable diesel to uh, a, a Hefa uh, SAF product that would go into airlines. And I asked him what his plans would be or what would trigger that. And he was very blunt and very quickly said, why in the world would I do that? It's additional CapEx. I have yield losses. And then I've got to worry about different distributions. I, I'm not f- dropping that off at my local terminal. I've got to get to an airport. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the I think unless uh, if left up to the market, um, it doesn't make economic sense. It mm-hmm. will need to be a policy decision or uh, come from the airlines themselves so they are willing to pay a premium. But in that case, I, I think you've got uh, something unique, whereas maybe diesel fuel is a commercial input, but it's not 20 to, it, not such a large part of operating costs of most businesses that use diesel fuel uh, other than trucking companies. But the airlines, their number one line item in OpEx is, is is jet fuel. And so now you're starting to uh, push up uh, the, the cost of their operations at a higher, higher percentage.
3: <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I do agree with you, Bruce. It's you can see there is. I mean, it, it is extra capex, and it 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 has a, uh, let's say an uh, energy loss in it. So in the end, it would re- result in a bit lower CO two emission reduction. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, the, the sector has to be seen in in the total context of all sectors in which let's say alternatives get into place, like electrification. So there has to be a kind of a balanced switch over. And um, it is interesting to see that policy makers and politicians want uh, HEFA uh, and alternative soft fuels to enter into this space because they do see that, well, it it will become a license to operate for uh, airlines, whether they like it or not. Um, And uh, the argument is they don't have any uh, alternative to decarbonize, uh, to lower their climate impact. Um, and uh, of course, forget that at this moment in time, also in the road transport sector, as I showed in the in the webinar, with a large volume of of, of road energy consumption, that there is also not an alternative yet in road. And as long as that still has these high volumes of fossil introduced, you can question whether you already should shift it to the aviation sector or still keep it there until the moment arrives that let's say the domination of electrification has taken over and then you could switch because then you have the time to further build up your technology. You could, let's say, hopefully have, uh, let's say, economies of scale and economies of learning so that you are able to produce at lesser costs and then make a much more swifter uh, transition towards these fuels. And I think policymakers have to rethink this strategy and their policy on this so that it's it's, let's say, you enable the development of the sector and the build-out build uh, and use the road transport sector for doing that while that is moving to electrification. And I think that would be much smoother than now putting these sectors in competition, um, which would, would, let's say, negatively perhaps impact also greenhouse gas saving um, performance.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it is kind of interesting your your question, um, Philippe, because if we take what what Bruce was just saying about policy, well, that's what's being discussed uh, in Congress right now. I mean, of all the issues that need to be sorted out in the transportation energy space in the U.S., um, you know, because there's not the same kind of vision. There's no fit for 55 Mm -hmm. coming in the United States right now. Any of the Mm -hmm. visions that the commission has put forward, whether you agree with them or or not, there is a vision. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They're they're on a track. It's clearly Mm -hmm. toward decarbonization. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. is really behind. There's two policies that I really feel very bullish about. One is on electrification, Mm -hmm. expanding charging infrastructure, um, point of sale uh, rebates and incentives for consumers to purchase EVs, things like that. The other policy that I'm super bullish about, probably more so than electrification is the SAF tax credit that's being discussed um, in, in Congress right now. And in a way it, it is kind of substitutability because I think right now refiners are watching this or others who are scaling up in the space are watching this and they're saying, well, you know, right now I get LCFS credit, I get uh REN generation, and I get the biodiesel tax credit for blending, it does not make sense for me to do more on, mm-hmm. uh, on SAF. However, with that tax credit, which starts at $1.50 US and then goes up, uh, the better your carbon intensity score is, that may end up resulting. you know, <clears throat> That is what's supposed to, according to the airlines and the producers, close that gap. And you would kind of have, um, in essence, Hmm. Substitutability um, hmm. with yeah. that. Right now, the policy yeah. is not yeah. set up that way, but yeah. I bet you in the next year or so, yeah. Yeah. it yeah. will be. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. And, substitute- and similar in Europe. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, substitutability, <laughs> <a> difficult <laughs> word, but I mean, that, that would not be the best development for the market because then you, uh, let's say, you just, let's say, uh, have the same volume used in one sector, then suddenly goes to the other sector, and there is no there is no expansion of it, and there's no benefit in climate change with that respect. So we have to, I mean, uh, we have to stress always that if if you want to expand in a new market, then also your volume of Biofuels produced as whole should be expanded to it, so that that you cannot, let's say, grow uh, because the other ones are then diminished somehow.
0: Mm-hmm. Philippa, turn it back so, to you. Yeah.
1: So I think we we all agree that when it comes to different sectors of activity, like uh, heavy trucking, uh, road transport versus aviation, we we sure need policy to to make. Uh, decisions uh, forward. Fine, but um, on the subject of the hierarchy of usage, uh, there's another debate that has been uh, growing up recently, especially in the, in, in Europe, which is uh, that biodiesel comes in two different versions today. Mm-hmm. The original versions, uh, mm-hmm. which we could call first generation, which is fame, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the second generation, which is HVO. Uh, so um, Both have their pros and cons. And I mean, uh, HVO, of course, uh, doesn't have any blending limitation, uh, for instance. Uh, Conversely, uh, fame has some limitations, uh, at least for the the non-captive fleets. Uh, And then uh, from a discussion uh, with with someone from REG uh, not long ago, I understand that it could be also synergies between HVO and fame, because they have different properties that can really be very interesting when you combine them into commercial diesel. So should there be a hierarchy of usage between fame and HVO? Yeah, great. There, yeah. We're competing on the, on the same uh, feedstocks, of course. And we're still on the, the supply limit that we've discussed uh, at the beginning of this podcast.
2: I think it's a really interesting question and and REG clearly has come out with their own blend. Um, And so uh, they have economic reasons for doing that uh, because part of their strategy is to get to the end user and sell a fully blended product. Uh, So it's difficult, I haven't seen, and and I I understand conceptually what some of those benefits might be of combining those, those two molecules. Uh, so that's interesting to see. Uh, I think the question would be, is someone else going to see those benefits outside of REG? Is that an REG solution uh, for their particular assets and fuels? Or is this something that catches on and is driven by the customer or, or others? So I think that's one question. But it's it's a really great question. Um, and in the US, that's going to be centered around the largest fame producers are also the largest feedstock producers for HVO and RD, and those are the soy crush companies. And there are only four or five of them that drive 80% of the market. Uh, So uh, it is interesting. Uh, Our understanding is now, if they pencil out, uh, it would be better for them to sell their soybean oil to the RD producers than to make the fame in-house. So I think two things I would watch later this year to see what happens is one, what happens to the RVO in the US? Is that a growing pie? Or is the overall RVO uh, for those D4 rins growing slower than RD production? Uh, So that tells us a little bit zero sum or how much room is there for fame and HVO or RD to coexist? Um, And then the behavior of the soy crush plants. And will we see any announcements of them using some of that feedstock Removing it from their fame production and selling it, or or joint, you know, a joint venture or some arrangement with an RD producer, that would really be a a major shift in 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 the market in in uh, the fame RD uh, balancing act in the U.S. Yep. <clears throat>
3: So, from the EU perspective it's, a, it's an interesting question um, I would say that let's say in the end well policymakers should not let's say determine this type of hierarchies I think policymakers should actually uh, I mean they tend to uh, develop all kinds of instruments and control uh, levers but in the end they should say well this is the target we would like to achieve this amount of renewable energy in the system this amount of co2 emission reduction achieved by 2030 and market well you you are there to develop propositions that fit customers that fit regulations and that fit sustainability standards go ahead and compete yourself uh, and the best uh, uh, options will be taken up by the by the by the market uh, so that is a way of doing it so they set the boundaries so it's policy regulated market uh, but give freedom to the to the parties how to achieve that, and um, 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 b- because when you when you set hierarchies as as a as a as a policy you actually limit innovation because and you also limit the, the power of thinking in in companies to find solutions. Um, so what we do see is that um, um, well, some s- fuel suppliers now actually start using well. Uh, combinations of fame and HVO in a specific product which they call um, uh, Renewable Diesel 30 or so. So that means it has, it is still a B7, so with, which is one of the labels which has max 7% fame in it, and then still has an, adi- an additional amount of uh, HVO in it so that the overall content of renewable energy increases up to 30%. And that's a product that it's a, it's a product that some customers actually want to buy because they can then demonstrate their better climate performance. There is also a product HVO hundred at the market, which is a fully HVO blend. It is no longer a B seventy five, so it doesn't comply to the EN five ninety. But many uh, uh, truck manufacturers and some uh, personal car diesel manufacturers have, let's say, freed their product, their cars. For the use of this xtl product so you see that some producers and fuel suppliers are, are exploring this type of let's say well serving customers with specific niche products and i think that is the way to go forward at the same time i think well um b7 is uh, the, let's say the famous probably cheaper so there will always be a market for that to fill that volume HVO is a drop-in and a nice product, but it is more expensive to make and also, so well, this this is the balance of power. Whether in the near future people will will value the drop-in qualities under any circumstance and at any price better than let's say the 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 the, the lower cost option of B7 in the volume. So, and that's that's a market play, and and I think it is exactly there where it should be.
0: All right, that's the show. Thanks for listening. I wanna thank Eric, Bruce, uh, and especially Philippe so much uh, for being on the show and to Philippe for being my my co-host and co-questioner today. Um, Really, really loved having you back on the show for part two, (laughs) the Q&A for the future of HBO. Again, you can access that web conference and the presentations on the website, there's a post. And of course, this post uh, will also link uh, to the web conference as well so that you can access and view if you haven't already. And if you're looking for more analysis and more information on transport energy issues, head to my website, transportenergystrategies.com. You can sign up for a free biweekly newsletter, which sort of keeps you posted on topics like this and on special events uh, like the web conference um, and other interesting uh, dialogue log and analysis as well. Thanks again.